generations. MF planes and missionaries have been in the skies for over 70 years now. With those years, it's an honest statement that MF has been flying and serving for generations. MF pilots have seen families start, have children, and years later see those children grow up to start their own families. Gene Jordan is someone who embodies this idea of generations within MAF. Not only has he known and been part of MAF for most of his life, but Gene has a slight, unique claim to notoriety. And if you stop by his office and peek in, you can see it. A fading 5x7 photo in a simple wooden picture frame. My uh, parents had a slide from years ago of um, Nate kneeling down by his airplane and me standing beside him. And I have that picture firmly planted in my memory. That memory is of him and Nate. The Nate in question is no other than the Nate Saint, likely the most well-known MAF missionary of the last century, who was one of the five missionaries who are now known as the Palm Beach Martyrs. My parents uh, told me that we made several flights with Nate as my dad was going out to different uh, villages and doing evangelism. As I got older, I've always known about MAF, about Uncle Nate and Aunt Marge that had a little yellow airplane down in Shell, always known about MAF flying there. And then it was probably both early memories and then later memories through high school that God used to direct me into service with MAF as a young adult. Gene's first contact with MAF was because his parents were missionaries in Ecuador. His parents weren't missionaries with MAF. They had their own ministry, but Gene found himself drawn into the work of MAF, the planes and hangars and pilots that he came into contact with. In high school years, then I had an invitation to go down to the MAF base in Shelmetta and to uh, help load the airplanes, weigh up the loads, fuel the airplanes, clean the airplanes after they landed at muddy airstrips, to sweep the hangar, to paint whatever as a high school kid, always hoping to get a ride in the airplane. I also had uh, two Sunday school teachers that worked with the Summer Institute of Linguistics with Wycliffe Bible Translators and uh, one of them was the chief mechanic on Wycliffe's DC-3 in Ecuador, Tariri, and the other was their chief pilot, Bernie May, and got rides uh, with them on the Wycliffe plane out to their base in the North Jungle. MEF was down south, Wycliffe was up north. So I, I saw both operations, and during my high school years, I was able to um, live several summers in Shell, uh, with the MAF pilots and just have a, a longer exposure to what MAF did. And so as I spent more time with MAF uh, through my high school years, I was pretty set on the fact that this would be something that I would enjoy doing, that I could do, that I felt God was preparing me and allowing me to do. So, no, there was nothing else other than um, missionary aviation flying, and then that into uh, MAF specifically. I really liked the fact that MAF worked with uh, dozens of different organizations and the wideness of MAF, supporting this and that and the other. I, I liked that. 
He had his heart set on MAF. The Lord made the way possible for him. And so Gene started down the path that would eventually get him accepted into MAF as a missionary pilot. So I did go through Moody Bible Institute's flight program. At the time, it was two years of Bible study in Chicago, followed by two years of um, technical studies, a year of maintenance, a year of flight, and then a year of getting some liberal arts credits to lead to a degree. So I went through that program with the intent of graduating, getting some experience, and then going right to MAF. And that's what happened. Throughout most of the 70s, Gene went through college and received his pilot and A&P license. Along the way, he chanced upon a beautiful lady by the name of Lynn, who he would go on to marry. Then in 1978, Gene and Lynn would land back in Shell, Ecuador as a missionary family with MAF. No longer a high school helper around the MAF hangar, Gene would learn about the country that he grew up in. Now from the perspective, not of a passenger, but the pilot. If you are inspired by the stories you are hearing today, there are ways you can be involved and support this great work. One way is to apply for the MAF Visa Card through Christian Community Credit Union. This isn't your average credit card. When you open a new MAF Visa Card account, Christian Community Credit Union donates $50 to MAF. Plus, every time you use your MAF Visa Card, the credit union will make an additional donation to MAF. To date, MAF has received over $560,000 from this program, the equivalent of over 220 flights for medical evacuations, delivering Bibles, and transporting the local church. You also earn reward points good for airfare, premium merchandise, cashback, and more. MAF encourages wise stewardship and does not promote indebtedness. As you use your card wisely, you can support the work of MAF with your everyday purchases. For more information, go to myccu.com forward slash MAF. That's myccu.com slash MAF. The uh, pilots that I had been there with as a high schooler were no longer there. There was a whole new team of people, but the integration was fairly easy. I knew Spanish. I, I kind of knew a little bit about the country. So it was really a lot of fun to start flying and getting to know the jungle, getting to know the rivers, getting to know the mountains. Everything was done by pilotage, by getting to know the area. So it was pretty painless. I had great flight instructors. They had taught me how to fly the country. In a way, serving in Ecuador for Jean was like coming home. With an astute grasp on the language and having grown up in Ecuador, he was happy to return to the country. This is in contrast to stories of other missionary families we've heard from this podcast season. For Gene, he could neatly skip over this. He started right in on learning how MAF flew their planes throughout Ecuador. Fairly quickly, within very few weeks, I was flying to the closer in airstrips and the better airstrips. At that point, we had class A, B, and C. A being a good airstrip, B being a, a little more marginal, and C being the, the worst airstrips. Each with the increasing levels of difficulty between A, B, and C airstrips, MAF pilots train extensively for the various types of runways they'll inevitably face. The nicer, easier class A airstrips are breezy, long runways that require no out-of-the-ordinary preparation. The Class C airstrips, however, might require the pilot to know how to safely land on one-way, no-go-around airstrips that have an extreme angle of approach. 
These Class C airstrips might also have no option to climb out of once you're committed to land. Otherwise, you, your passengers, and plane would end up on a side of a valley too steep for the plane to clear. After so many years of experience with these types of airstrips all over the world, MAF knew how to ease in a pilot unfamiliar with the train. The process of getting checked out in Ecuador was a relatively slow one because we had about 240 airstrips that we flew into. We did not fly into all of them all the time. Uh, occasionally we would get an emergency call and go somewhere, pick up a patient, and we may not be back for a while. So we checked out on the A-class, the good airstrips, and then flew those for a period of months, and then worked into the B airstrips, flew those for a period of months to gain experience. And then we would go into the C-class airstrips, or the worst airstrips, and, and get good at those. And there were some airstrips that after a while you knew what to do, you knew how to do it. So if I had to go to another airstrip, we would go evaluate it and then go ahead and land there. So I would say it was probably close to a year before I was flying into all airstrips in any weather at any time. It was a very slow, methodical, planned out checkout, and I felt MAF did me very well in getting me ready to serve. With his training underway, Gene recounted to me his progression from the new pilot that he was when he first started flying in Ecuador, flying cargo, on up to his first honest-to-goodness passenger that flew with him as pilot. They had me fly cargo. We flew a lot of fuels, fuel oils, cargo into mission stations. So my first flight's just flying cargo. And I do remember my very first passenger that was willing to uh, fly with me, a wonderful lady, a missionary in Ecuador, Joyce Stuke Grable. She was my first passenger. I took her to her mission station. She had flown with MAF pilots dozens of times before. I think I was more scared than she was, and she could show me where to go if I'd got lost. But it worked out fine. So we can all be thankful that Gene proved his mettle as a pilot in Ecuador. Now, I've been somewhat remiss in that I haven't given an overview of Ecuador yet. So where is Gene flying? Well, Ecuador is located in the northwest of South America, sitting right on the equator. Its western border is the Pacific Ocean, the Andes Mountains run up the middle of it, and the eastern area's geography is dominated by the Amazon jungle. All that diversity in an area that's the 74th largest country by landmass, roughly the size of Nevada. As far as travel went, the mountains presented a challenge for transportation across land, and a good reason why airplanes proved a boon for reaching farther into Ecuador. In Ecuador, we flew among the lowland Quechua Indians. These would be longtime descendants of the Inca Indians that came up out of the mountains and down into the jungle. We flew for the, the Shuar Indians in the south part of the jungle. These are Indians that had a reputation of killing one of their enemies and then shrinking their heads to softball size. Their cousins, as it were, were the Achuar people. Their language were similar but different. They could understand each other, but still a different group of people. And then there were the Waurani, the group that Nate Saint, Jim Elliott wanted to contact. So we flew in different groups, and there were different mission agencies that worked in these different 
uh, people. Some worked in evangelism, some worked in community development, some worked in health, some worked with literacy. So we got to work and fly for a lot of different people in a lot of different ways among different people. It was pretty well divided in, in the shell program, the type of flying we did. It was not uh, leaning toward one people group or the other. Although some groups were bigger and had more communities, we would fly maybe more into that area. And the flying was fairly well divided between medical, both emergency and preventative, and the missionary church type, and then the community development. So it was about a third of development, a third mission, and a third medical a well-rounded routine of flights throughout Ecuador for all sorts of reasons. Gene talked about some of the community development projects and evangelism outreaches MAF helped fly to the villages. Some of the early missionaries, Frank Drown was one, and he introduced uh, cattle into the communities he worked with where uh, the communities would raise cattle and then um, they would uh, butcher a beef, uh, cut it into four big pieces. MAF would fly it out and sell the beef, and then the money would go back into the community. It was a way that a community could have some income to buy medicine, to do whatever they wanted to do. And school teaching and cattle raising were the professions amongst the Indians. And I flew uh, baby calves in to start projects. That was always interesting. That was some of the development work that the missionaries did that MAF helped them do. Another thing we did that was a lot of fun to do is different mission groups would bring together their church leaders for training. We would shuttle pastors or church leaders into one central airstrip, and they, they might be there for a week of training. And then when it came time to take them home, Instead of returning them to their own home village, we would take them to another village that was not their home, drop them off there. Now, they knew about this. It wasn't a surprise. And then they would walk overland on a canoe or whatever back to their home village. And this might be a week or two of walking. And, and it wasn't that they were traveling to get there as quickly as they could. They would stop in each little village along the way, and they would share what they had just learned about. It made them practice what they had just learned. They couldn't go home and just be comfortable and get back to their gardens and hunting and life. They would go, and this was part of the training, to learn and then go put it into practice as they worked their way home. MEF was part of many good works in Ecuador. There were plenty of other flies to go around as well, and not all of them were so involved with bigger goals. Some of them were just about moving monkeys from one village to another. We had them as pets for our girls as they were growing up. We flew a lot of them around because little small monkeys, marmosets, would kind of latch on to the hair of a woman and kind of perch up there, and they would wear them around. But uh, we flew a lot of monkey meat. Smoked monkey was a delicacy for them. I have tried it. I'm not particular to it. But we flew a lot of monkey meat around, take it from this community to that community. And probably one of the more humorous things I saw is there was a candy that was very popular in the U.S., Pop Rocks. You'd put them in your mouth, and they'd kind of explode in your mouth. 
Well, to give a monkey pop rocks and to watch their expression, and then they, of course, wanted more, it was hilarious. Yeah, we had a lot of fun with monkeys over the years. Gene Jordan flew into the towns and villages of Ecuador, delivering cargo, people, and livestock, big and small. It was all part of the work and ministry that he'd signed up for with MAF. Right now, we're going to take a short pause to hear about exciting opportunities that are going on at MAF today. And when we come back, Gene has more stories to tell about his flights, involving cheapy-cheapy rain and lightning, soggy airstrips, and the joy of seeing the results of his service when he recently traveled back to Ecuador after having been gone for many, many years. You don't need to cross an ocean to serve in missions. There's an opportunity for you right where you are. MAF is looking for people with faith in Jesus Christ and a desire to share their time and talents. Near and far, MAF's work goes further with your partnership, and we invite you to join the exciting work God is doing through MAF. At the MAF headquarters, volunteers are invaluable. By serving with MAF, they devote numerous hours, skill, and expertise, which in turn saves MAF hundreds of thousands of dollars for the ministry work in the most isolated corners. Volunteers assist with building projects, valuable office work, and unique tasks enhancing the ministry of MAF. And around the United States, volunteers support MAF events and opportunities that might otherwise be missed. If you'd like to volunteer with MAF, go to www.maf.org volunteer or call us at 1-208-498-0800. There, there are many, many stories when I think of rain and shell. Shell was right at the base of the Andes Mountains, right at the start of the Amazon rainforest that went east into Brazil. The warm, moist air from Brazil would be blown up against the Andes Mountains. The mountains would raise the wind, the moisture. It would condense, and it would rain, and it would rain buckets and shell. We would average almost an inch a day, 24 to 28 feet of rain a year. It rained a lot. Now, we didn't get frontal activity like you do up here in the U.S. The rain would come, it would rain hard, and then it would go away. When it rained very, very lightly, the Indians, and we called it cheepy-cheepy rain. When cheepy-cheepy rain came, we knew that it was probably going to rain for two or three days without quitting. And it would do that at times, not be a hard rain, just a light rain. You could run to the hangar without an umbrella, but we couldn't fly. When it rained hard, it would come in and move out. But we dealt with rain all the time. I was flying a national pastor back into Shell. We were trying to skirt some big rain showers and working our way to the north to then head down into Shell. And all of a sudden, it was like a thousand flashbulbs went out. Lightning hit something, either the airplane or right near the airplane. But for you know a few seconds, neither of us could really see. The flash had blinded us. But I always wonder about the power in that storm that unleashed right beside us. A lot of rain, a lot of power, and it happened all the time. The airstrips were generally wet and sloppy. Breaking at times was a challenge. And we had to be very, very careful about which strip we would get to know, which ones dried quickly, which ones did not dry quickly, which ones you could land on an hour after a rain, or which ones you had to wait four or five hours after rain to land on. But we got to know them fairly well. 
The pilots in Ecuador did learn the airstrips well. Rain, however, could trick the eye or pool up in different areas that it usually didn't or perhaps sink into the airstrip where pilots could not see. This next story takes place after one of those rains, a case where precipitation actually proved a benefit to pilots. I had departed one of our mission stations that we go into a lot. I was just getting in the air and I got a call from Bill and he said, Gene, I think I need some help. And, and I knew where what section of the jungle he had been flying in. The other missionary is Bill Clapp, a longtime MAF pilot. I said, well, do you need me to come over? And he said, uh, I think so. So I banked the airplane and started my turn toward where he was. So what happened, Bill? He said, well, I was alone in the airplane making my takeoff roll, and a horse ran out in front of me. And I hit the brakes real hard, too hard. I had no weight in the tail of the airplane, so the tail of the airplane came up. This was a tail dragger airplane, so there was no nose wheel. The tail of the airplane came up, and I buried the propeller in the mud on the airstrip, and um, I'm sitting up here on my nose. Okay, I'm coming. I remember it was probably a 7 to 18-minute flight away, and uh, I had only flown five or six minutes, and Bill called me, said, I got the airplane down, I climbed out of the airplane, we lowered the tail, and I think I'm okay. Are you sure you're okay? Yeah, I think I'm okay. Um, I've looked everything over, and I'm going to fly back to Shell. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. Okay, so I can go on my way. Yeah, you can go on your way. So I continued on my flight. And a couple hours later, I was back at the hangar in Shell, and I landed, and um, Bill came up, and uh, yeah, he was there. He was there safely. And he said, hey, come over to my airplane. So I went over to his airplane, and he said, uh, tell me which blade went into the mud. And I looked at the propeller, and they were both dirty from flying in the mud. And I said, I, I don't know. I, I could not tell which blade went in. He showed me, but it was so wet that day that... At, at the right speed and the right way, he buried that propeller in the mud, and we did extensive testing on the propeller, the crankshaft, as much as we could. And as I recall, that engine continued to fly out its life to when it was normally overhauled. But it was a quick scare that uh, had a good ending. Safety is not taken lightly at MEF. Planes are maintained like a clock and pilots aren't cowboys. The aircraft have inspections, and pilots have reviews to make sure they are cleared for service. For the pilot, this is more than just basic know-how of aviation best practices. We have the operating manual safety guidelines of not landing on an airstrip with standing water on so much of the airstrip. We learned fairly quickly uh, because of the soil. Some airstrips drain quickly. Some airstrips don't drain quickly. Uh, the way they're sloped, uh, the way the water runs off them, we learned which airstrips could be landed on fairly quickly, which ones could not. As far as the weather patterns went, the weather changed so quickly, so erratically, that it, it, was, it was hard to try to second guess it. You had to kind of work with what you had. And one thing I appreciate about MAF, if I launched out on a flight and I felt that the weather was such that I needed to turn around and come back, or 
that I maybe should not land at airstrip A and continue to airstrip B, I was never criticized for that decision. In other words, my, my immediate manager never said, well, you should have continued that flight. You should have landed there. They, they respected each pilot's decision-making. Now, in the early days, I maybe gave up landings that I didn't give up as I got more experience. But we had to learn to kind of work the weather, to listen to the Indians on the radio as they gave us their reports, because they got pretty good at looking out and saying, you know what, I think by afternoon we can fly around here, or you're not going to fly today. Most of the time they were pretty good. Sometimes it didn't work out that way. But it was just a day-by-day-by-day a day day learning Day by day, these protocols were the bedrock of MAF's commitment to the people they fly and the God they serve. It's one of the reasons that MAF continues to fly in places all over the world and be a part of lasting impact. In Ecuador, Gene was present at the beginning of an outreach that involved children memorizing Bible verses. Learning these verses by heart was the key for kids to go to a camp that required a flight in an MAF airplane. One of the missionaries that we flew, in fact, he went to Ecuador as he heard about Nate Saint's death and the other guys. He said, I can go and help fill their spot. And he chose the province that Nate was killed in, the province of Pastaza in Ecuador, to work. And he established, oh, about 20, 25 schools in communities uh, in the jungle. And Part of the requirement for him to help these schools would be that they would have religion classes, and religion classes would be studying the Bible. So they would learn very simply in their own language about a God who loved them. And one of the things they did is they memorized Bible verses. In first grade, the first graders would memorize six Bible verses. Second grade, 12 Bible verses. Schools only went up to sixth grade. So by the sixth grade, you were learning 36 Bible verses. And if you knew these verses perfectly, you got flown out to a week at camp. And the pilots would listen to these verses. We would listen to the kids um, say them. They could learn them in their local Indian language or in Spanish. We would listen to the Spanish ones. The local teachers would listen to the local languages. And when the kids were flown out, they were flown out to Shell, to the hangar in Shell. And then they had about a 25-minute car or truck ride up right into the foothills of the Andes where a camp had been established. The first year that this program was held, only six girls came out to camp. No boys were brave enough to do it. And what they would do is they would go over these 36 verses. For God so loved the world. Who's God? Why did he love the world? What is this world? You may live in Bufeo, and you just met kids from Copatasa. And your world that was as big as a day's walk on the trail is now an hour's flight of the jungle to a place where you see Buses and taxis and cars and water faucets and lights and all kinds of stuff. So their world, their, their worldview would just explode in knowledge. And they would talk about this. 
God loved the world and he sent his son. Who is his son? And why did he die? And so they would use these 36 verses to form a foundation of belief for these kids. Camp was exciting. The teachers would come out. Not all of them were believers. They would come out and they would be camp counselors. And they will have listened to these verses hundreds of times and they will have memorized them not even wanting to. And many of the teachers came to understand that God loved them and came to profess Christ as Savior, as did the kids. So the camp flying brought kids from all over the jungle, the north jungle, the south jungle, to camp just beyond Shell, and then they'd study the Bible together. Now, in some years, they would take the kids across the Andes Mountains, up through the passes and down to the Pacific Ocean. And these kids would see the ocean for the first time and play in the waves and have a week of studying their Bible verses at the beach. Amazing changes for these kids, but very effective in helping them understand who they were in the world, where they lived, and that there was a God that loved them. How amazing is that to take your first airplane flight to a camp where you learn about Jesus Christ and his plan for you? It was an experience not forgotten by those who committed to memorize the Bible verses that ultimately gave them far more than an airplane flight to camp. We'll be back shortly to hear those stories. If you are inspired by the stories you are hearing today, there are many ways you can be involved and support this great work. Your ability to impact MAF financially is far more than the dollars you can give directly. Does your company match donations you make to MAF? Have you identified MAF on Amazon Smile or other merchant programs that automatically donate a portion of your purchases to MAF? Do you use the MAF Visa card that donates to MAF or have you considered MAF in your estate gift plans? Every donation helps share the love of Christ with isolated people. Go to maf.org slash donate to see the many ways that you can help bring the love of Christ through MAF. Or go to maf.org slash WPG to learn more about workplace giving opportunities that you might be able to participate in. My wife and I had two girls and my youngest daughter, Kelly, and her husband and family are back in Ecuador as missionaries. So anytime that we can get back to see the kids, to see the grandkids, and to see MAF, it's a great time. And we spent last Christmas together as a family, all of our family down in Ecuador, and we did go to Shell. And it was very, very good for me to be able to see with the luxury of time to look back over 22 years of being there, what some of the outcome was. Now, one outcome already established. Jean and Lynn did have their own kids who got married and had their kids and eventually found their own way back to Ecuador. With a grandkid on a knee in the country you spent so many years, you'd be considered blessed. So Jean might be considered double blessed or more as he got to go back out to his old haunts and airstrips 15 years after they left the program as a missionary couple where he was a recognized face. At one of the strips, a young lady approached me and she said, Capitan, come, come see, come see my little office. And her office was probably 10 feet by 10 feet. It was a little uh, raw board building that had been boards cut with chainsaw. And it was her health 
dispensary. She was like the local drugstore. Now, very, very simple drugs, bandages, very simple first aid things. She said, as a child, I used to watch the airplanes take patients out to the hospital and they came back and I wanted to do something in health. And when I was a schoolgirl, you would fly me out to camp and we would scream when the airplane bumped in the air. But I wanted to help my people and now I am the health promoter. And she was so proud of her little office with her little stock of medicine that the government gave her and her ability to help her own people. NMAF helped her get there, and so you just feel pretty proud. There was also another Ecuadorian whom Jean watched grow up from a child into an adult, someone intricately linked with the story of MEF, whose goal was also to see transformation in the name of the Lord. A young man whose grandfather was involved in the killings in 1956, he said, as I was growing up, I wanted to be a teacher and a preacher and an evangelist to my people. And I have been able to do that. And now MAF flies me around. Sometimes I travel overland. Sometimes I go by the river. Sometimes I go by airplane. But I am a preacher, an evangelist, and a teacher to my people. And to see this young man, who I knew as a little kid, and he would come around the hangar, and, and just to see him as a young adult, with responsibility, with care for his people, and just wanting the best for them. It just makes you like a proud papa. So yeah, that has been great to see. Now I have just one more story to share with you about the work Gene was a part of, about the impact he may have had in transforming people's lives from generation to generation. In this case, perhaps even making that next generation possible for some. When I started flying, I found out that most Indian communities would not name their children until they passed about two years of age. The reason for that being is uh, every community was by water. We need water to live. They fished in the river. They bathed in the river. They played in the river. They went to the bathroom in the river, and so did every other animal. So the river water was pretty dirty, but that's what they drank. And a small baby would get diarrhea, get dehydrated, and not make it very quickly due to dirty water. So if the child survived past two, they would probably make it, so they'd be given a name. And I saw over time, this did not happen quickly, it happened over years, where communities where we were able, working with different mission organizations, to put in a fresh source of water, it might be a well that was dug some distance away or nearby, but to give them a fresh source of water and to tell them, look, play in the river, bathe in the river, fish in the river, but drink from this spigot. And it took a long time. You know, well, why? Well, there's little bugs in the, in the water. Well, we can't see them. Yeah, well, we can. And there are little bugs that you can't see. It was a, a long time of training and teaching people. But they saw that if they gave their babies the good water, they didn't get sick. They didn't get diarrhea. They didn't get dehydrated. They didn't die. Over time, in many of the jungle communities, 
I saw the infant mortality rate go way down. Babies weren't dying. They were naming their kids earlier because of clean water. And that actually had very, very, very direct relation to a, uh, a community and, and being able to say to them, you know, there was a man named Jesus that said, I am the water of life. I give you water that gives you life everlasting. And they could make the connection before we drank the dirty water and our children died. Now we drink the clean water and they live. And, and this guy says that he can give us clean water. So there was something they could see in their community that made a difference. They could relate to what Jesus said. It was a great way to start to open the door to realize of their need of a savior. Which is the reason MAF exists, to physically and spiritually transform the people whom our pilots befriend and support. Gene Jordan worked and lived the mission day in and day out, flying passengers to and fro down in Ecuador. These years later, he can see how his dedication helped bring improvements and life changes in big and small ways to those people he served. Thank you for listening to Flight Follow. We hope these stories bring you insight to the corners of the world where MAF uses aviation and technology to see people physically and spiritually transformed by the love of Jesus. If you'd like to hear more about MAF's ongoing work and ministry, you can at maf.org, where we have all the most recent news and stories from our programs, as well as updates about our missionary families who serve with MAF. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and we'd love for you to stop by and say hi. A thank you goes out to the great team that helps bring these together. Tracy Weary, our Director of Marketing Communications, and Chris Burgess, our Communications and Media Manager. Thank you to Gene Jordan for his stories from the field, recounted to me in the MAF headquarters lobby, with Nate Saint's plane as the backdrop. As we close, I want to remind you that we have other episodes of Flight Follow for you to queue up, and we hope you stay with us for another leg of the trip. This is Paul O'Brien, signing clear.